This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. I didn't realize until last week that you recorded with Danielson. So I'd love oh, to yeah, right. That. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. a huge Danielson fan. With uh, Steve Albini, we went up to no Electrical Audio and worked for a week. It was a blast. So what was, what was it like working with Albini? the most fun. Well, I'd worked with him before because okay. uh, we had um, uh, signed Chevelle to Squint, the label that I had. Right. And they were three brothers out of uh, the Chicago area. And uh, I, was, I really wanted them to work with someone in town. And I just assumed Albini was out of reach. And so I called up the studio and, uh, you know, the guy I got said, yeah, we can, we can make that happen. It was really... Uh, chaotic because uh, the first day we showed up at the studio and um, I'd kind of set everything up but I don't know if I'd maybe I'd talked to Albini once at that point and of course I was a huge fan from what he'd done with Nirvana and the Pixies and so the band shows up and it's like where's Joe you're a little brother he said oh we fired him last night <laughs> so it's a three piece bass drums and guitar and they just fired Joe the night before so Already, you know, that is not a good way to start off. So not knowing what else to do, we start recording. And Albini's thing is he likes recording a band essentially right. live. Right. All to, you know, analog and very little messing with it. It's all just mic placement. And uh, so now, we're, you know, we're doing like a like a White Stripes before they were around. It's like guitar so and player. drums. We got no yeah. bass player. And so after about three days, and it's just not working, they rehired Joe, and so he comes back. Their brother. Now we're fine. Their brother. Now we're finally back to being a band. It's starting to sound good. But Albini is like the first three days. He's like dead quiet, barely saying anything outside of you know, uh, move on to the next song. Just absolute minimum. And for whatever reason, on like day four, something broke through, and he decided we were all right. And then. Uh, we started, we just got on great. And then a few years later, his girlfriend wants to do a documentary on kind of the Cornerstone Festival and Christian rock in general. And she's not. Was that a, what did the devil get all the good music? That's the one, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she contacts me. And so I helped her with some details and finding people and tracking them down and different things like that. And, you know, it turned out really well. I think during that process was maybe when they met Daniel. And then Daniel ended up recording at least once there, maybe twice, and they got on great. So when it came time to record this EP, we decided, oh, we should see if Albini could do it. He was not only available during one week, but when we got there, he was like so much fun. Like it was the most fun I've ever had in the studio That's in so all funny. my days. It was all back to analog. It was terrifying. Really? But we had such a blast. And, oh, you know, to tape. cutting and, up and, yeah. you know, doing impressions and it was I just fact I just sent him something last night because we uh the, the artifact that we made since just an EP is we made these it's called Wow to the Dentist and we made these 
tiny little coffins with uh, the uh, like a you know flash drive inside and in photos of all of us lying in repose. And so I sent him one last night just yeah. to show him what what we ended up with. That's awesome. I had some friends that were in a in a hardcore band that recorded with him in the '90s, and they kind of had the same experience. Like he he was super. Like they were like, I don't think he said anything for like three or four days. Right. And he yeah. would just move mics around right. and kinda, you know, grunt and nod. And they were they were they said they'd go back to their hotel room every night going, He hates us. Like he hates us. And then around like the third or fourth day, they played some song and it was like maybe it was like the first song that he liked. Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he was like, Oh, he sat up and got really into it and yeah, was right. was totally fun after that. So he was like the world's uh he was one of my favorite people. He's but also like a, a, a Class A contrarian. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now, first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, this is Mike Cosper, and you're listening to Cultivated. Today on our show, we're continuing our conversation with musician, producer, and filmmaker, Steve Taylor. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and hear that episode, because this picks up right where we left off in his story, in the late 90s, when Steve made a series of music videos for his album Squint, and got the itch to start making feature films. So from the Squint film, that sort of brought you back into making movies. Yes, it did. And then, in fact, the Newsboys, I was making another their album called Take Me to Your Leader, and they wanted another long-form video. And, and come on, come, coming off this other experience. So I said, hey, why don't I do like, I'll do like an hour long. It'll be like a movie. You know, I'll script it, but it'll, and it'll give me the experience of finally working with sound and working with dialogue and all the stuff that you need to do. Because when you're doing music videos, you know, we trick ourselves into thinking, oh, we're, we're making like, you know, many movies here because we were getting more and more, sure. you know, more spectacle and bigger budgets. And the fact is, all you're doing is you're adding, you know, images to a pre-existing soundtrack. Sure. When you start messing with dialogue and writing stories and, you know, character arcs and all that stuff, it's a whole different world. So I did this uh, hour-long movie with Newsboys called Down Under the Big Top, where they uh, supposedly inherit this really low-rent circus and have to save the day. And it was a, a total blast to do and actually, you know turned out it's weird it's one of those things i'll be out on tour and and people are always coming up to me with like copies of this vhs and how they wow. you know they watch it every year christmas with a family or something <laughs> like that and so that was the thing that made me want to take the next step and eventually get into looking at your imdb you've made some short films and but then you made the was the second chance the next thing that you did that was the first movie that was yeah the first movie so what happened was with squint when i started the label it was going to be a you know, music and film. And the, the the funding also came with a million bucks to do a movie that I'd given them like a treatment on. It was like a postmodern fairy tale. It was going to have like uh, 
stop motion animation in it by the guy that did the cash cow video, oh, longtime yeah. friend uh, Jonathan Richter. And so we went to work. I worked with my friend Ben, uh, the cinematographer, and then another guy, uh, Willie Williams, who is uh, U2's like stage designer and you know fantastic artist, and been with him almost from the beginning. And so we we worked on this for like two years. We finally did like a, a table reading where I got actors around a table and you know pass out the scripts. They read it. I don't say anything during the whole time. I just listen to it. And at the end of that uh, table reading for this movie called uh, St. Gimp, I realized that this movie was unfilmable. And if we did film it, it would be unwatchable. <laughs> and so, that's, um, a, that's a tough thing to acknowledge after two years. It was years. tough. It was really tough. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and we, we had the money to make it, too. So, like, I could have pressed forward, but it would not have been pretty. So we scrapped that. And, Let me ask you um, real quick. Yeah. I mean, so do you, think, do you think it was, like, overwrought? Like, you worked on it too long? You gave it too— or just— It was just, just outside of my grasp, right? Interesting. I, you know, like, ideally, I try with each new project to do something that's that's outside of my reach a little bit, right? And uh, otherwise, it just, like, what's the point? And this one was just way past my skill level. It just didn't have it, right? And there was no denying it. Like, the, the actors were were kind. Like, nobody was, you know, making fun or yeah. it was just as obvious as could be. Yeah. And so, and there wasn't really even any fix in it. So I thought, well, I still want to make, I want to make a movie. And so I thought, you know what, I, maybe what I need to do is do something that's within my reach. And having grown up in church, always been kind of fascinated by the racial dynamic of churches and, you know, why they why they split off every week yeah. into, into their own camps. I thought it would be interesting to do like a, what amounts to like a black and white buddy movie at the time they called, that was kind of the genre, where the white guy is like an associate pastor at a big mega church in the suburbs, and the black guy is like a pastor at an inner city church. The white guy, played by Michael W. Smith, gets forced to work in the black church that doesn't want him, and somehow they have to figure out a way to get along. And it would be fun to do that and see what else came into the mix. James chapter 1 teaches us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. I'm the sociopathic dad, I'm not a social worker. You're not going there to fix anything. I just want you to observe and to learn. Answer the question. Why are you here? He needs more than a sermon, Jerry. He needs his wings clipped. I gave you my pulpit time televised, and you use it to start a fight. I just think the home front should take priority, that's all. You mean your home front? for that kid. I couldn't do that. I think you could. Pastor Jake know about this? It'll be our secret. It's about money and power. And I don't believe Jesus spoke highly of either. Well, what about arrogance? Is that how they teach teamwork in the pros? 
So, you know, it, we got to make the movie. And it's I, I think it's reasonably good. There's plenty of mistakes <laughs> in it, but they're all my mistakes. And in some ways, you know, uh, it might have been a little ahead of its time, certainly within kind of the Christian world. I didn't see any way you could do it without a certain amount of PG-13-ish language, right? Which I think a lot of people disagreed with that notion. <laughs> but... Um, but it's, you know. How did Michael W. Smith get involved in the project? So Michael really was, in many ways, the reason it got made. We had the script, and the script was good. But early on, my friend Ben, who was the cinematographer and co-wrote the screenplay, he knew that Michael, who I knew, you know, kind of casually, he knew that he'd always wanted to act. And so we got with Michael and spent a day just not so much seeing if he could act, but see if he could play a version of himself. Not that his character was like that necessarily, but, you know, people get in front of the camera and sometimes he right. just frees up. And Michael was generally good that day. And, you know, he did a good job. And the stuff that he's not that great on was honestly my fault because I, you know, I, I didn't give him activities, something to kind of take him out of himself, feel less self-conscious. But a lot of the stuff is good. And, you know, yeah. it was a, it was really fun working with him. He's a good guy. So Blue Like Jazz comes next? Yeah. So, you know, the, the Second Chance movie got picked up by Sony Pictures releasing and it was not a big theatrical success, but then it sold like half a million DVDs. And so, or right before it came out, I'm thinking, what's the next project? And somebody had given me this, this book, Blue Light Jazz, to read over Christmas break. And I can't tell you why, but I finished it. It's not a book you put down and think, oh, I see this movie in my head, but I finished it. It's like, I, this has got to be it. This is it. And uh, at that point, it wasn't a hit. It was starting to get a little kind of buzz, but, it, you know, it wasn't a bestseller by any means. And I think it was a couple of reasons. One was there's, there's a famous scene in the book that takes place in a, um, a confession booth. That was part of it. And then just the story of a guy who grows up in a, in a conservative environment and then goes kind of to the opposite place. In this case, Don, you know, went to Reed College and audited classes there was appealing just from my own college experience of, you know, going to Biola for a year and then going to the University of Colorado Boulder. And I just thought, man, I know this story. I know how to tell this. So Don was in town the following month, visiting from Portland to do a reading. A friend of ours, a mutual friend introduced us. Don was familiar with my music and the second chance was opening that weekend. So I said, uh, pitched him on turning his book into a movie. But I said, you know, the, the big thing is the story of a 30-year-old uh, Christian writer who moves to Portland and audits classes is not really a movie story. What if we made your character a uh, college student who lived the experience, you know, like a 19-year-old college student? And he was like, yeah, that sounds good. He said, well, let me see your movie this weekend. And he went back to Portland and saw it and really liked it. And he called up the next day and said, let's, let's do this. And this is before his, his book was a hit. It was, yeah. yeah. So we started working on the screenplay. He wanted to be involved with the screenplay, which – you know, it's usually not a good idea, especially when it's a memoir that you're adapting. Sure. And I think the old adage is you read the book once and then you throw it away and, you know, right. <laughs> you make your movie. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, understandably, he he had opinions. At a certain point, I thought, okay, I could say no and just say, no, you know, this is not going to be a good idea. But maybe he says, well, then maybe you're not the guy to make this into a movie. So I said, okay, why don't you at least go to this screenwriting seminar by this guy, Robert McKee, in L.A., attend that. At least then you'll have a, a vocabulary for what we're doing. And he went and loved it, came back, and then we started working on the screenplay. And it was mostly a great experience, but it was still hard for him to 
think in terms of a movie versus a book. Yeah. So he would say things like, "Oh yeah," and then and then in this scene, you know, we'll we'll you, we'll we'll do that scene where where Don and Penny are in a in a coffee shop and having that theological discussion. I'm like. No, no, not interested in two people sitting around talking. Yeah. Like stuff happens in movies, right? Right. He said, oh, okay. And then maybe the next day he would say, oh, yeah, and then there's that, there's that scene where I'm in the, in the, in the pub with uh, Tony and we're having that d- political discussion. Right. It's again, not about people sitting around talking. Stuff has to happen, right? So he's like, well, that scene's boring. This scene's boring. He said, so what you're really saying is my life is boring. Right. And I was like, mm, I'm not saying that. And he said, no, you kind of are. He said, you know, next time I should just live a more interesting life and then we wouldn't have to change anything to make it into a good movie. Yeah. And amazingly, that's what he did. So while we're yeah. creating the screenplay, he actually started making better life choices and living a more interesting life and taking risks and doing all this stuff. And that ended up becoming, you know, his next book, his next book which yeah. is a, a really good book, A Million really Miles is. in a Thousand Years. Weirdly enough, you know, the screenplay was good. It was you know, a little edgy, but I just assumed there were plenty of fellow Christians who believed in the value of, you know, in, engaging culture and that they'd be lined up. And in the meantime, the, the book becomes like a big success, you know, sells 1.5 yeah. million copies on the New York Times bestseller list for like 45 weeks. So I think, well, this is going to be easy to fund. And I could not have been more wrong. There's a lot you don't know about me. <laughs> I come out of this subculture. All right, here it comes. Yeah. I want Jesus to be my amigo for my birthday. <laughs> I came here to escape it because I was ashamed of it. But it turns out that I'm ashamed of Jesus. Yeah. Is this going to get weird? Yeah, probably. Oh, I bet I know At Reed College, Forget everything you think you may know, because you do not know anything. Your private religious wacko beliefs are none of my business, but if you plan on ever making friends, get in the closet, Baptist boy. There's a guy dressed in a Pope outfit pushing a burning shopping cart. Everyone here seems so sure of themselves. You know nothing. I just wanted to fit in. You're okay with heights, right? Was it you? It was just a joke. You don't even know what you did because you don't know the people that you hurt. Think back to when you were nice. Don. Do I look stupid? You just look like you don't belong. Don't you ever wonder why God doesn't just do something? You only believe that stuff because you're afraid to hang out with people who don't. Don't let them brainwash you, Donnie. You really want to hear all this? Friends may not think you're cool. They smile. They shake your hand. Then you're drinking the Kool-Aid. It was a mistake. Why are you trying to hide who you are? I made a mistake. Improvise. Write your own story. The universe doesn't owe us meaning, son. If you want meaning, I suggest you try a dictionary. My dad told me jazz is like life because it doesn't resolve. But what if we're not alone? What if all these stars are notes on a page of music swirling in the blue like jazz? In fact, I was so wrong that that the book about us writing the screenplay for his prior book also came out, also became a bestseller, and we still couldn't get the (laughs) money to fund it. And ultimately, the only reason we got to make it was because of uh, this Kickstarter campaign, which became its own kind of phenomenon. They launched their Kickstarter campaign in 2010. If you pledged as little as 10 bucks, you not only got a copy of the movie, you got a personal thank you call from Steve. For 100 bucks, you got a credit as an associate producer, and the prizes got more generous from there. Visits to the set, work as an extra. 
The campaign raised almost $350,000 from more than 4,000 people. I still think back on that. It just seems like a miracle to me that this all came together in a, such a short amount of time. And so ultimately, it was a, it was a really satisfying yeah. experience. Happy with the film. and feel like I am. I'm happy with the film. It's, it's, you know, the same thing. Like, the mistakes are all mine, and I made fewer mistakes this time. And for the most part, I think it holds up, holds up pretty well. Yeah. So now more recently, though, you've gone back to music again. Yeah. So... I was so frustrated not being able to get Blue Light Jazz made that I told my wife, oh, man, I got to do something. I'm, I'm going crazy. And so I called up my old friend Peter from Newsboys and a couple other friends. And we just started meeting at John Painter, who is in a group, Fleming and John. We started meeting in his studio and just, you know, kind of thrashing around yeah. songs. And it got to where we recorded quite a bit. And, uh, and we were thinking, well, let's go ahead and, you know, do an album. And then the Kickstarter campaign happened, and it's like, oh, I guess I'm doing a movie. And that whole process took so long that by the time it was all done, it was like, oh, man, we got this album that's two-thirds done. We should go ahead and finish that. So that went back to doing music for a while. I think yeah. I called it a like a sabbatical. And Because uh, how, how many years was it between Squint and that it record? It had been like 20 years, 20 years between Squint and this last album. That's amazing. Yeah. I went out on a holiday. Part of it was, I really liked the Squint album, and I really didn't want to do another album unless I thought it was going to hold up. And so, but yeah, I ended up being happy with that. And Danny Syme from uh, this band, Menomena in Portland, who ended up doing the music for Blue Light Jazz, we'd send him the mixes and he he mixed it. It was a really good, good experience and a, a good, uh, it was just fun making music again and being with your friends. And, you yeah. Know, being on the road. That Kickstarter video is one of the best <laughs> Kickstarter videos of all time. TJ and I were watching it on the way up here, just dying. Yeah, so. yeah, there's a, a lot of a lot of embedded truth in it. There's, there's, there's some great stuff. Hey, this is Steve Taylor, and as you can see in the box directly below, I've started a band, and I'm launching a Kickstarter campaign to fund our album. Uh, I'm a little nervous because it's been almost 20 years since my last album and tour, so I'm here at the Tennessee Department of Music Veterans to see if I can get my license renewed. 86. Hey, Sir, going? this is the Department of Music Veterans. Please put on your sunglasses. Okay. And you need to be on your cell phone. You need me to call somebody? I don't care. Like this? Which license are you here for? Uh, license to rock, but it's more of an indie alternative thing. Stage props? Uh, yeah, I brought these heads from back in the day. Um, Look like this. Pyro. From the heads? No. I just got a text. Purpose? I don't know. I just thought they were kind of cool. I could juggle them. That won't be necessary. Fill out these forms. They'll call your name. 87. Sorry. Steve Taylor. Follow me. Okay, stop right there. 
I'm gonna need 80% more swagger and twice as much indifference. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, sunglasses on? No. Yes. Yes. Pulling back, pursuing a life in the arts. We, we've talked about this a little bit, but I guess I'm curious, you know, when you look at it, I'm sure that over the years it's demanded a lot of sacrifices to kind of stick with it. That there have been moments where it's been like, okay, do I, do I go get the day job now? You know, is this it? What's kept you coming back? Do you know? On some level, it's like you're not sure what else you could do. I function fine. So it's not like I wouldn't know how to work a, a regular job. There's a certain freedom to it and this kind of the buzz of working with other artistically inclined people that is hard to let go of. And so I get a lot of friends, you know, in Nashville who have been doing this for a while and, and they're now, you know, barely able to make a living doing it. But I see why they still keep yeah. pursuing it just because it's it's not really like anything else, you know. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, a, a lot of what draws you to it is kind of the communal sense, the ability to get with people and make yes. make things as a as sort of a, a family, right? Yes. When I would talk to artists who were thinking about signing with Squint, I would just tell them that I just, I feel like when they're able to marry their artistic passions on some level with their Christian pursuits or their Christian ideals, I don't want to, I don't want to say spiritual pursuits because it sounds too fuzzy because yeah. I was, you know, I, I wanted to work with fellow Christians. That's, that's a very satisfying place to live. It, you know, it, it can go badly quickly if you're not careful, but it's, that's a really satisfying place to live. And part of the reason that it's satisfying is because it's not me-centered. It's not full of that kind of poisonous myth of the artist who sacrifices everything for their art, which I, I think is not admirable at all. And in fact, has uh, ruined a lot of great possibilities and uh, for sure. great possible artists. Yeah. So uh, last couple of questions here. Um, I guess as sort of a, somebody who's been an artist, when I think of satire, I think of somebody who's got this critical eye for what's going on around them. We're living in strange times. Like yes. the last 10 years has seen this kind of incredible progressive wave, of secularist wave that's putting all this pressure on churches. And then 2016 happens, and there's this other whole thing from sort of the alt-right and all of this. Yeah, I didn't see that one coming. No, <laughs> I don't think anybody. Hillary Clinton sure didn't see that one coming. Right. So how do you make sense of where we are? I'm curious, what are you thinking about and what are you observing in the midst of all this? You know, I'd gotten kind of, apolitical, I guess, uh, over the last 20 years. Just it didn't seem that interesting to me anymore. And, you know, when I started off making music, it wasn't so much political, but it was charged with uh, the current state of the world. And then when I came back to doing music to the Goliath album and even the album with Daniel Smith, there wasn't really a whole lot of that. It was, for whatever reason, probably age. It has more to do with, you know, what's going on inside you and the insane contradictions in the human heart, right? Mm -hmm. But I gotta say the Trump phenomenon like like really bothers me. And, you know, I'm only active on social media when I need something from people. <laughs> but uh, I sent out a tweet that I just thought was self-evident. It was during the primaries and I, you know, said a little friendly reminder if you're a Christian voting for Donald Trump, you've either lost your faith or lost your mind. And... Um, <laughs> And I, I mean, I subtle. thought, well, I thought it's who subtle. would argue with that, right? <laughs> and I was, I was very wrong about yeah. that. A lot of people, a lot of people did not like that. And so there's a, there's part of me that's kind of activated in the same way that I was, you know, when I first started out, because I'm just so upset with the hypocrisy of it all. 
you know, the tough thing is if I tried to write songs about that, you know, and we, we ended up doing the cash cow live, you know, I'd change out Donald Trump, Donald, or Ron, Robert, Tolman. Robert Tolman without the horns to Donald Trump. Oh, no. um, but I'm so troubled by that. And I'm, you know, I couldn't vote for either of them. I don't even like talking about politics because it's just not something sure. that I'm, I'm not concerned about, but this one really bothers me. And what bothers me is just the abject hypocrisy of people. I guess, you know, I guess when the final election came across, I guess I kind of understand, you know, but when it was primary season, like, I didn't get that at all. It seems like there's a whole lot of people who kind of said, like, okay, I'm going to hold my nose and right. pull the lever. Yeah, right, right. Because this is, yeah. this is what I have to do. And I kind of get that. So... One of the things I've, you know, I've been listening to your podcast and one of the things I love about it is, you know, we're talking about this moment in time and the future seems potentially very bleak to me. And, you know, you could argue it's going to be bleak either way. But I think one of the reasons it seems so bleak is because there is such a sense from so many fellow Christians that the end somehow justifies the means and that, you know, when we compromise to the place where, a guy like that becomes our guy. That's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I had no idea we were going to get into this. No, no, yeah. I don't mean to, I don't mean to put you on the spot <laughs> if you don't want to say it, talk about it. But uh, I mean, it does seem like a, like a ripe moment for satire. It so, does, so maybe right. Your voice and is, at the same time, you know, you know, we're seeing, you know, re religious liberty is certainly a great question mark too. We live yeah. in a really, a really tricky time. I don't, I don't know what the, what the future is going to bring, but it, it's, I think it's, could get ugly. Yeah. So what would you say to a young artist who's like a 20-year-old Steve Taylor looking to make music and make their way in the days ahead? Yeah. I mean, man, just faithfulness to our faith and uh, to kind of orthodox uh, with a small old Christian teaching and, uh, you know, not aligning ourselves with any type of politics. A Christian, you know, we shouldn't be able to be defined by politics because it's not going to make sense to outsiders. We're going to be picking from all different sides and Christianity just demands things from us we don't probably naturally want to give. And yet uh, that's what faithfulness looks like. There's a pine warbler sitting on a hollow limb He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him and everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around now first he sings and then he goes and what it means it's hard to know steve mentioned a song called the cash cow a minute ago the music video is on youtube and i encourage you to go check it out we'll link it in our show notes it definitely adds some color to what we just talked about one bit of shameless self-promotion here. It's actually release day for my new book. The book is called Recapturing the Wonder, and it's about how a disenchanted world has left us feeling disillusioned and cut off from transcendence, about how it dims our experience of faith, and it describes how ancient and modern spiritual disciplines can help reorient us to another way of seeing and experiencing the world, recapturing our sense of wonder, like the title says. Okay, you can get it wherever books are sold. Also, mark your calendars. Sandra McCracken's new podcast called Steadfast starts on September the 6th, just a few weeks away. You can subscribe to it now in the iTunes Store or Stitcher or Google Play and listen to a preview. While you're in there, you can leave a rating and a review of this show. And of course, you can help us spread the word about our show on social media. 
Our show today was produced by me. It was edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. And today's music was by Steve Taylor, Steve Taylor and the Danielson Foil, and Steve Taylor and the Perfect Foil. Special thanks to Dan Darling and Jason Thacker. Come back next week when my guest will be singer, songwriter, and speaker, Audrey Asad. I didn't grow up with praise and worship music or anything because it was a hymns-only tradition, but I had this kind of rebel uncle who liked some of the Jesus Freak stuff from the 70s, and he, I think the first praise and worship, quote-unquote, modern contemporary song I learned was uh, You've Been Left Behind by Larry Larry Norman. Norman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I sang it with him as a duet at a BBS one year and it made a big splash. (laughs) See you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.